We're going to continue looking at Ephesians chapter 6 as uh, Paul puts the conclusion on the book of Ephesians. And he deals with the issue of spiritual war. And so we're going to continue moving along. And by the way, I don't know if you've noticed, one of the reasons we're taking these pieces of our armor uh, in the chunks that we are is because they just can't be dealt with properly, uh, lumping them all together. So we've looked at the fact that we're in war, the fact that we are not at peace. And we've looked at the fact that we are uh, commanded to stand firm and to put on this armor so this isn't optional for us who are followers of Jesus Christ. It is absolutely commanded. It's essential. We have seen the fact that um, that, that this has to be done. We, we've looked at how we do it, and that is through prayer. And, and, and so uh, we're going to begin taking these pieces of armor uh, as, as they come to us in the text. We're going to deal with two today. So before we do that, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to launch in. Okay, Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, for your glory... And for our joy in you, we ask, Holy Spirit, now that you would do your work among us, that you would be teacher and counselor and helper, and that you would aid in the understanding of your people, and that hearts and minds would be wrapped around your word, that truth would prevail, and that righteousness would be a byproduct of that truth, and that we would be well, well equipped today. So we ask you to do this, and we are... Absolutely in need of you pulling that off. Without you doing this, my words and our effort are in vain. So we are in need of you to do your work now. So we bow the knee to you, we look to you, and we ask you to rule, Chief Shepherd, in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians 6.14, walking worthy of the gospel, putting on the armor of truth and righteousness. Now, last week, I made this big point, and it was huge for us to get this. We don't make much of the metaphors. The metaphors are not the point. And so often when this passage is taught, way, way, way too much is erroneously made of the metaphors. Paul is using a metaphor of a Roman soldier's armor. And unfortunately, so many times people take that piece of armor and, and, and they read way more into it that is, that is intended to be. And I'm not going to do that. And so, uh, we're going to, you're not going to hear me mention the metaphor an awful lot. And the point is, I don't want you focusing on the metaphor. I want you focusing on the armor, okay? That makes sense? Good? All right, very good. So that's what we're going to do today, walking worthy in the gospel. Remember, that's the theme from chapter 4 on, walking worthy, walking worthy, walking worthy of this powerful, unifying gospel of the kingdom, whereby there is one head, King Jesus, and King Jesus is ruling his kingdom well. He sits in the heavenlies, ruling the heavenlies well. And he has come and he has accomplished the mission and he is unifying the church and the advancement of the kingdom all under his headship and then Paul begins to teach us how to walk worthy in that, how to live in a manner that's worthy of this unifying gospel and we've come to chapter 6 and we learn that we walk worthy by putting on this armor and the first two pieces we're going to take a look at are truth and righteousness truth and righteousness go together like hand in a glove to quote D.A. Carson truth and ethics are tied together Creedal confession and transformed living go hand in hand. So we cannot separate truth and righteousness. Listen to Paul in verse 14. Stand therefore. And this is another one of the places where he said stand repetitively, right? Stand, stand, stand. Meaning we need to stand. We don't give ground. We don't give up God's things. We don't give up truth. We stand. There are things to stand upon. And there are stakes we put in the ground. There are wars I will fight. I have a steel spine. And and as a follower of Jesus Christ, you need to as well. There are places you need to stand. A, because we're commanded to. We don't give ground. And so we stand. So again, he says, stand, stand therefore. Having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Stand, therefore, having fastened on. And the the participle, I didn't make a lot of the participle having fastened on here because I didn't want to overwhelm you with too much nerddom. But that is beautiful because the picture is, this is the verbal adjective of the result of praying. This is, this is having prayed, having, having living in this communion with God in which you're walking in the presence of the Lord. This is the, the attitude and the lifestyle of your life. Having all that. 
truth. Truth and righteousness. Armor you up. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time with that. That's all the time I'm going to spend is what I just said. But notice that participle is beautiful. The armor of truth and righteousness cannot be separated. It is a must. It is a must in the Christian's defense against the onslaught of the enemy. And the enemy's schemes. And those schemes that might cause us to give ground. And so if the command is to stand, the temptation would be to give ground. Then in order to not give ground, we are going to need truth and righteousness. Our belief in the truth and our ethical living of that truth are absolutely essential. So we're going to take a look at them today. So first point is Paul's first piece of armor. And here it is. Put on truth. Put on truth. When we're talking about putting on truth. Paul's language here is absolutely key. Truth is a noun. It's not an adjective. And if you don't know the difference between a noun and an adjective. A, I pity you. Go look it up. Google it. Probably find an adequate answer. But the implication. Implications massive. If Paul had used truth adjectivally here. Then truth could be a. He could be talking about portions of truthful behavior. Some actions that are truthful and some that are whatever. Sort of this blend and synchristic blend of some truth and some whatever. But he doesn't use an adjective. He uses he. This is the noun. Person, place, or thing. We're talking about the very essence. The very essence of something. So Paul says our armor is truth. Not adjectivally, but put on the very essence of what is true. Now this is vital. We're not just putting on some truths. We're not tacking on facts. He's talking about living in the very essence of what is right. This, this is vital. We're going somewhere here. I would argue that a failure to put on this truth now, not, not facts. You've got to keep in mind, man, listen, the gospel is not comprised of a bunch of facts. The gospel contains facts, but the essence of the gospel is not just a list of facts. Now, don't, don't hear me say facts are irrelevant. Facts are part of what is... Facts come after the essence of truth. When you understand the essence of what is true, then there are facts. But you don't start with the list of what's true before you get the essence of what determines that list of facts. Are you tracking? Are you lost? Thank you. Some of you guys are like, I'm not sure how to answer. I'm just going to sit here and wait, and that's okay. Hang. A person who doesn't... Understand this noun truth. We're going to define that here in just a second. I would argue as a person who's not a Christian. You can't be a follower of Jesus Christ until you understand this noun of what is true. And that determines that list of facts that are true. A person who doesn't love or obey the truth cannot call themselves a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, you Truth Project people who've seen it for the 17,000th time, and it's okay because it's, you, you should continue to watch it until you die. It's fantastic. Truth never gets old, and Dr. Tackett's presentation never gets old. Jesus' stated mission. Why did Jesus come to the earth? John 18, 37. To testify, to bear witness to what is true, the truth. Jesus stated mission. The implications of that, Jesus' primary mission wasn't first to come and die for sinners. He was going to come and die for sinners, but His coming and dying for sinners isn't simply coming and dying for sinners. It's testifying to the greater truth that determines why He needs to die for sinners. Does that make sense? You're like, he's, I'm not sure this cat hadn't walked away from the gospel. Listen carefully. No. Jesus said that. I've come to testify to the truth. My life, my words are bearing witness to what is true. Jesus stand on the declaration. And here comes my favorite word. His declaration of the meta-narrative of what is true. His stated purpose is to declare the meta-narrative of what is true. 
And He's been revealing that since creation until the point He said that in John 18, 37 to the point of His death, burial, and resurrection. And until the restoration of all things. He said this is the truth. And that truth is what we as Christians should be living by. This is the armor we're to put on the noun, the meta-narrative. The truth of His kingdom. God's Word, the Scriptures, tell us the meta-narrative, the noun, the truth. You say, what the heck is a meta-narrative? If you haven't sat through my classes, and you've heard me say meta-narrative a lot, and I'm not sure I've really defined that a lot. I just assume most Christians should read. And you have a concept of a larger overarching story. And back, if you, you can at least watch movies, right? right? Please, do you all watch movies? Yes, praise God. There's always an overarching story that gives meaning to what's happening. Walking Dead has a meta-narrative, right? Greatest show on television. But it has a meta-narrative, has an overarching story that gives meaning to the individual people's lives. A meta-narrative answers the question, multiple questions. Where did I come from? Who am I? So meta-narrative answers that question. The overarching story of reality, the noun, answers big questions. Who am I? Where did I come from? Who are you? Are you just a biological reality that's just biological and, and, and there's nothing else to you? So therefore there's no greater importance than your physical existence? Is that what you are to me? I hope not. That's not the Christian metanarrative. That's not noun truth. Who am I? Who are you? How did we get here? Why are we here? How am I supposed to live? What happens when I die? Those are big questions that the truth, meta-narrative, answers. Understand. This is what Jesus is testifying to. He's giving answers to these questions. He's been giving them since Genesis. And He will complete His answering of them when He returns and fully establishes the kingdom in the new heaven and the new earth. This meta-narrative, this overarching story of what defines reality is the truth that Paul is talking about putting on the noun. Every answer to all of those questions I just asked, who am I, who are you, why am I here, where did everything come from, what's our purpose, how are we supposed to live, why do we die, what happens when we die, all these questions... Answers comes from the noun, the meta narrative. The meta narrative of the gospel. There are other competing worldviews. Why my, my stand keeps twisting on me? That's driving the daylights out of me. It's like every time I touch my screen, it's like. Why is this happening? <laughs> Can you answer that for me, Jesus? To cause you to pay better attention? I don't know. Jesus' declaration of. Coming to testify to this truth demands that he be right or wrong. His declaration that he came to bear witness to the truth demands that we determine him to be either right or wrong. It also means that competing worldviews are either right or wrong. You see, this is why Jesus isn't a popular figure when taken from the text of Scripture as it stands. is because Jesus sets himself at a category... In which he has to be right, or he was crazy, or he was intentionally deceiving people, a la C.S. Lewis, right? Meaning, if he's right, everybody else is wrong. The meta narrative, the truth of this overarching story of who am I? Who are you? How did we get here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? What's our purpose? What happens when I die? The meta narrative answers all those questions. Let me just go ahead and throw it on you. John 17, 17 tells us God's word is truth noun, not adjective, doesn't contain truth. And this is where liberal Christianity throws you off is because it will tell you it contains some truth. But those difficult passages like 1 Timothy 2, 15 that define roles in the church gender wise. And they, well, see what happens. See what happened there, you know, uh, Kind of like in the pre-modern like modern time. And they're still kind of Neanderthals. And they sort of, you know, so that's not true. No. Jesus said noun. Your word is noun. Truth. Meta-narrative. Large, overarching story gives meaning to you and I. Right? Does it make, make sense? 
So your word is truth. And Jesus said, sanctify them, clean them up in the truth. Your word is truth. In other words, we grow in righteousness as we adhere to the noun, the meta narrative of the truth. Genesis Revelation. Who is God? Listen, who is God is a big question. Who am I? Who are you? Why are we here? How did we get here? How did all this get here? You see, this is a vital thing. I, I, I can't, I gotta share this now. I put it in the manuscript for next week, which I'm, this is awesome. I'm already on next week's sermon. That's freaking awesome. Um, so pleased with myself right now. Um, that's never been the case. I found a, an article this week, and, and the reason I, how I found this article it's because an atheist group is absolutely obliterating this and sort of, sort of straw man in the argument. It's like avoiding the re, kind of like the implications of what was found. And uh, what happened is in Egypt, some archaeologists, because archaeology in that part of the world is a fantastic science. You need Christian archaeologists. So some of you guys like digging in the dirt, adventure, dangerous places, want to find stuff hidden in the ground, become an archaeologist. Because the evidence is there. History is God's history, Jim. Why do we have a church calendar? Why is this stuff on the calendar? Because it happened. This isn't, this isn't story. This isn't made up. This is real. It happened in time and space. There's evidence. So digging in Egypt. Mummy. Mask. Made of paper. Paper that's recycled. Because you can't go down to CVS and buy a new pack for 50 cents. College ruled, right? It's expensive. Papyrus. And so they reuse this stuff. Make a mask out of it. They found a fragment of the Gospel of Mark from AD 80. First, first evidence we have, manuscript-wise, of the New Testament being first century. We know that because they tell us they're eyewitnesses. So it had to be first century, right? But we only have manuscripts from the second century. First Evidence, manuscript, first century, eighty eighty. <laughs> that's exciting. You know, that's, that's big. Why? Because what it tells us is written by witnesses is a fact. Your word is true. Jesus, I came to bear witness. I'm speaking to these people. I'm revealing the reality of what you're here for, who I am, what this is all about. I'm revealing that to you. And Paul says, that's the armor. Is knowing what is true so that then you can determine if that list of facts is right or wrong. The list of facts, adjectivally, is determined by the noun, the meta narrative, the large story. You see, other worldviews are going to answer these questions. If you don't answer them with scripture, somebody will answer them for you. The one that we're most familiar with is naturalism. It's one I kind of harp on the most. It's sort of dying. That's going to be replaced with other things. But naturalism, this idea that the natural physical world is all there is, has multiple branches in it, like existentialism. And that's probably more than you wanted to know today, but I'm going to educate you, right? Existentialism. This idea opposed to empiricism. It stresses that the individual's unique position is determined as self-determining agents who are responsible for their own choices. It's the idea that I must find meaning in my life because there's no meaning of my life. And so therefore, I find meaning in myself, me, myself, and I, because there's no other thing for me. I exist for me because there's no purpose to my life. You see, that starts with the belief there is no God. It answers the question, who is God? There isn't one. Therefore, meaning is determined by me, not God. So therefore, if I determine meaning, then I get to determine my meaning and my purpose. Do you understand that's diametrically opposed to your Bible? Psalm 139 tells us God marvelously knit you together in your mother's womb. And all of your days written for you were placed in his book before one of them ever were. Oh, don't blow in your mind. Who am I? What am I here for? Jesus answers that question. Come to testify to that. Hedonism comes out of naturalism. It's the idea life has no purpose other than pleasure, so go for it. As a result, there's no place for suffering. Suffering's worthless. Suffering should be alleviated or avoided at all costs. Dude, Christians act more like naturalists than they do Christians. Suffering is not something we run from Suffering, we run too. Because we get to suffer with Jesus in suffering. We get to be with our King in suffering. That's a world, that, that, that's a truth issue.
we, and we, if we're going to live in this unifying gospel, if we're going to walk worthy of this gospel, we can't live with the meta narrative that says there's no purpose in suffering. We have to live with the truth that suffering is laden with purpose. It is rich with God's providential purposes. This is why we don't suffer or mourn like those who have no hope, right? You see how the, the noun truth determines how you respond to stuff and, and, and make your list of adjectives? You, you, are you tracking? Are you following? Very important, right? Nihilism, right? My favorite sitcom of all time, Seinfeld, right? was nihilistic, which is why it was so funny. Because their life is purposeless and empty and I can do anything I want. Give me that marble rye, you old bag, right? And if you've watched... Seinfeld, you know the episode, and you're like, see, Dove's seen it. it. There is no purpose, so do whatever you want. Everything is nothing. And if everything's nothing, I can do whatever I want. Humanism. i got to make the world a better place for humans, because there's no other purpose. This I'm totally rabbit trailing, because it's summer crowd, and I feel like I can teach, rather than just kind of... Thank you. This is where naturalistic environmentalism and Christian environmentalism part. Naturalistic environmentalism is to save the planet because we've got to live here and we've got to make it last as long as we possibly can. Lie. Christian environmentalism says it's God's. We're stewards and managers of it. Our job is to subdue it and tame it and use it properly. Meaning you ought to take care of it better than the naturalist. Because it's God's and you've been put as a steward over it. Care for it properly. So I tell my kids, we hunt, but we don't hunt for, we don't kill to kill. We kill to eat. If you've got boys, don't let them kill to kill. That's dumb. Purpose, manage, steward. Like there's seasons for things, right? Mama's having babies. That's how you extinguish a species. Killing mama's having babies. Duh. Right? Don't kill them in that season, right? Right. So there's Christian environmentalism. There's actually Bible answer here, right? And so understand that the noun truth is the armor. Who am I? Who are you? What are we here for? How did all this get here? Who is it? Where am I going? Am I going to die? If I die, where do I go? Jesus said, I come to testify to the truth. The answer to all those questions found in Christ. Jesus said, that is in me. I sanctify you in that truth. And Paul says, if you're going to walk worthy in the gospel, you've got to walk in that truth. You've got to answer those hard questions with the truth, the meta narrative of the gospel. Quickly take a look at how the truth will clash with other worldviews and what the scriptures teach. I want you to listen. We'll just read some passages. Oodles of Bible here, okay? Just oodles of Bible. If Bible offends you, you're going to be highly offended for the next 10 minutes. I want you to listen to what the scriptures tell us about truth. I want you to listen to how a world system responds to the truth. And I want you to listen to the consequences of other meta narratives. Not putting on the truth or obeying the truth. So let's start with 2 Timothy 4, 3-4. Paul writes to his young protege here at the church at Ephesus. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth. And wander off into myths. This is an important thing Paul does here. He absolutely gives us the opposition of what truth is. He says it's a myth. In other words, any answer to any of those questions coming from outside the meta narrative of the gospel is a myth. It's made up. It's a scheme. Romans 1, 18 And then verse 25, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who, speaking of the men, unrighteous men, comma, who, the ungodly and unrighteous men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Unrighteousness seeks to suppress what is true. 
Seeks to push it down. Seeks to block its ears from hearing. Suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. God has never left himself without witness. All of creation screams. The psalmist tells us this. The heavens are declaring the glory of God day to day. Pours forth speech. There is no place where God's witness hasn't been made clear. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. You don't bring excuses to the throne on judgment day. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Answering those ultimate questions of the meta-narrative other than the meta-narrative of the truth of Jesus Christ leads to the suppression of the truth and the exchanging of the glory of God for a lie. And then said, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. By the way, everybody worships. Atheists worship. They sacrifice to their meta-narrative of evolutionary biology. And they worship the human body. They worship man. And they worship natural selection. And they sacrifice to it to the tune of millions of babies who have no purpose. Because after all, it's a mother's right to choose what she does with life. Romans 2, 6 to 8. He will render to each according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth. But obey in righteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There's a little motivation there to know the truth. Now, obey it. Answer those questions with truth. Second Thessalonians 2, 9-13. This will be the last oodle of passage. There's more, but I just gave you a few. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deceptions for those who are perishing. By the way, it's hard not to preach on these passages. And here's why. Comma, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. This is the basis for the statement I made earlier where if you don't live in, love the truth, now you can't be a Christian. Those who refuse to love and obey the truth are the ones who are saved. Those who don't are not saved. Therefore God, this is, this is devastating. Listen to this. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion. Listen, this is why Paul says today is a day of salvation. Listen, if you are within the voice of someone telling you the truth, and in your soul there is a beckoning to come to that and believe that, do not turn away Because God may, will at some point send a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. He is not tame, but He's good. In order that they may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in righteousness. By the way, you notice in these passages the connection between truth and unrighteousness? So we see that this, this armor of truth is quite vital. Wouldn't you agree? Answering these ultimate questions with the noun of truth. And then when you answer the questions with the noun of truth, the, the list of adjectives, you can start making the list because you now know how to answer the questions with true statements. Who am I? Image bearer. Created with purpose. No accidents in this room. Sovereign plans, providentially worked out through all kinds of circumstances and difficulties of life woven together by a good God able to take evil and suffering and weave it to good. 
That's who's sitting in this room. That's who you are. You're not just a biological reality that deserves to be quenched the very second you start draining resources from the earth. You see, what we learn here from John 8, 44 to 47 is Satan is the father of lies and the author of other meta-narratives. You see, other answers to these ultimate questions come from the evil one that Paul tells us here in Ephesians 6 that we're to stand against. This is why we don't give ground. We're to stand against the liar and father of lies. Listen to Jesus. Now, he's speaking to the Pharisees here, the religious elite. To wrap your mind around this one, right? You're of your father, the devil. This is why people don't like, this is why you've got to question the authority of the Bible and make it an adjective as opposed to a noun. Because if you make it an adjective, you can take passages like this out. You can be like the Jesus seminar and throw your little dice on the table and vote on what Jesus actually said. Guess what? You don't get to do that. You're of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. You see, if this is the case, then all answers to ultimate questions that don't come from the philosophy of Jesus Christ and Him crucified, in whom Paul tells us in Colossians is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, any answer that doesn't come from that meta-narrative is a lie. It's a lie. So how do we practice the truth, right? We know how to put it on through prayer, right? How do we, how do we practice the truth? Well... I'm going to have to jet through some of these here real quick. Number one, don't be taken captive. Don't be taken captive. Colossians 2, 6 to 8. Paul tells this church here, Colossians, beautiful book. Short, you can read it very quickly. Loaded, read it slowly. It's beautiful. Full, listen to this. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Now, A, number one, Paul doesn't down philosophy here. He names proper philosophy. Philosophy means the love of wisdom, right? He says, don't be taken captive by philosophy that's according to human tradition and elemental spirits. And not according to Christ. In other words, be taken captive by the philosophy of Christ, but not philosophy that comes from the elemental spirits and human traditions of this world system. So, don't be taken captive. Learn to answer the ultimate questions with the meta-narrative of the Bible. You know, I say it all the time, but you can never read your Bible too much. Dare say all of us have read it too little. You need the Bible reading plan. We put them back there for you. We posted them on the interwebs. Go Google ESV Bible reading plan. Pick your favorite. I don't care. Just read through it. Read through it. Answer those ultimate questions with it. Otherwise, you'll be taken captive by philosophy that's built on human tradition and elemental spirit. That, that's demons who are teachers. Don't be taken captive. Christians have a tendency to just say things, colloquialisms. We, we spit stuff out because it... I don't know why we... I think... So help me. I think we're deceived. Like, you know, God helps those who help themselves. No, He doesn't. That's from hell. God never asked me to help myself. Prayer presupposes I can't. That's why I'm asking Him. Right? I mean, just think, man. Think, right? Like, God will never let you, right, be put on you more than you can bear. Read Second Corinthians 1. That's a misquoting of First Corinthians 10. 13, right? And then you apply it to suffering. And no, Paul said we were suffering beyond our ability to handle it. So that when we die, the Lord will raise us back to life and show us He's in charge. He won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Being tempted and suffering, not the same things. Don't be taken captive by dumb things. Things that we just don't think, that we just assume it. We hear it, oh, that sounds good. And we repost it on Facebook. It's beautiful. It's like, no, no, don't. If there's any doubt, don't post it on the Twitter and Facebook, please. 
Particularly if you go to Three Rivers Community Church because it makes us all look bad. <laughs> Don't do it. <sighs> Don't be taking captive. Number two, engage your culture. Engage your culture. Don't withdraw. Don't withdraw from culture. Withdraw from culture says I'm in it. I'm sorry, and withdrawing from culture means I'm not in it, and I'm not of it, and I'm offended by the culture. This culture's bad, all of it's evil, let's go to five Bible studies and just stay out of it, man. That's withdrawing, don't withdraw. Don't conform. That is being in it and being of it, seduced by it. Don't be those two, engage it. Be in it, but don't be of it. Because how else can we take the kingdom unless we're in places where the kingdom is not there yet? Right? So we have to, that's why Jesus said, go make disciples of all nations. We've got to go, we've got to take the kingdom. We've got to engage it, but we don't answer the ultimate questions by its meta narratives. We offer the right answers through the right lens of Jesus Christ. And that's why we will be hated, is because we're challenging the very foundation upon which they built their culture. This is why the gospel's offensive, right? Use truth to destroy strongholds. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5. Strongholds are untrue beliefs about God and Jesus Christ. Read the passage carefully. They're not habits. Bad habits. Strongholds are false teachings about Jesus Christ. So we destroy false teachings with the armor of truth. Finally, we put on righteousness. You're like, finally, good God. Where are you taking all day to get through point number one? I told you we couldn't do all these at one time. I told you. Too important. Number two, put on righteousness. And this is the last point before we get ready to, to wrap up. Put on righteousness. You're thinking this is the last point. We're going to be here till three. When we talk about righteousness, we're talking about, again, Paul, this is a noun. This is an adjective. Righteousness, the noun, not the adjective. We're talking about the outworking of the truth. We're talking about the very essence of rightness. Righteousness is the behavior that emanates from the truth. Righteousness is the living out of the answers to those ultimate questions from the meta narrative of the truth. We're talking about the behavior of those who claim the truth. And I'm not going to get too specific on too many adjectives because the list is too long. And it'd take too long. But we're going to mention a couple of explicit ones that come straight out of the text of Scripture because they're just right there for us. To, they're gold nuggets sitting on top of the dirt. We don't have to mine too deep for them. Because we also have the issue of the Holy Spirit-informed conscience, right? We don't, we don't, we have this conscience thing. Holy Spirit informs us and we don't condemn each other if one's weak or stronger, right? Romans 14 and 15. Somebody likes the wine, somebody doesn't like the wine. Well, we are unified, enjoy it, right? Don't tell them don't. You don't tell them do. Be in unity, right? Bible teaches us that, right? So we have this Holy Spirit-informed conscience, and we're going to deal too much with the adjectives. We're going to listen to the Holy Spirit, obey the Scriptures explicitly. But righteousness has to emanate from the meta narrative of the truth. So we're going to try to keep it big picture. The armor of righteousness. Now, what's interesting here is we're going to keep this big picture on righteousness, but what's interesting is there's so much in the Bible that addresses unrighteousness. So I'm going to go there. The word unrighteous is a word meaning, it's, it's adikia, and the negative particle, ah, meaning dikaios, righteous. Adikia is un, the lack of righteous behavior. And it's translated in some translations, wrongdoing or unrighteous. And those words are interchangeable. What we learn here in 1 John 5, 17, is that unrighteousness, all adikia, is sin. In other words, unrighteousness is sin. Righteousness is not sin, right? So unrighteousness is sin. So putting on righteousness, the armor of righteousness, is loving holiness over sin. Tracking? If unrighteousness is sin, righteousness is loving holiness over sin. So when we talk about sin, we're talking about unrighteousness. When we talk about righteousness, we're talking about holiness. You're going to note, as I said already, we're talking a lot about unrighteousness rather than putting on righteousness. Well, why? Well, here's why. 
as a diamond's brilliance is most clearly seen against the backdrop of a black cloth, which is why you go to a jewelry store and the diamonds are like black velvet behind them. And they, they pull it out and show you guys who are about to get married. and they, they, they don't show it to you up against a white cloth. If they do, they, they drop the ball bad. They missed a sale. But if they put that sucker on some black velvet and it starts sparkling and like you, you go into like full-blown dumb mode and you start thinking of all the pints of blood and plasma you can sell to buy that, they have achieved the mission, right? So as the diamond's brilliance is clearly seen against the backdrop of black cloth, so righteous behavior becomes clearer when it's seen against the backdrop of sin and sin's death. Putting on righteousness will become clear. We'll quote from Mark Driscoll here. He said, when you say no to sin and yes to righteousness, you win a spiritual battle. When you say yes to sin and no to righteousness, you lose a spiritual battle and need to quickly repent, turn to Jesus, renounce sin, and press on toward Christ's righteousness. So let's quickly take a look at some, some unrighteousness here. Satan's the originator of and instigator of the deception of sin. Genesis 3, 1 to 6. We're taught that he is the originator of sin and unrighteousness. And so we recognize that all of sin and all of unrighteousness originates from our adversary. And so, therefore, the things that tempt us to walk outside the meta narrative of the truth and add the adjectives of unrighteousness did not come from the Lord. This is how you can distinguish the voice of the Holy Spirit from your flesh and from Satan, is God will never speak contrary to the meta narrative of the truth. So, in Holy Spirit, you're hearing thoughts in your mind that are completely consistent with what God has taught in His Word as to what is true. You can bet and rest assured it's not coming from your fallen flesh. It's coming from the Lord. So when you start hearing those thoughts that are holy and righteous and good, just obey them. It's a great adventure too, by the way. Satan's the originator of sin, an instigator of deception. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11, 3-4, I'm afraid that the serpent, or as the serpent deceived thee, this is so telling, as the serpent deceived thee by his cunning, listen to this, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. You notice what he said? But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, comma, your thoughts, stop there, your thoughts, your thoughts, your thoughts. What's the implication? Is the cunning and deception might come in your thoughts. Your thoughts will be led astray you're thinking, led astray, led outside the truth, led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, that's what all toned down versions of Jesus are, demonic, the hiss of the serpent. And then Paul says, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you Accept a different gospel from one you accepted. You put up with it readily enough. In other words, if Satan deceived these, so these imitations seek to deceive you. Deceptions from the same source. You want to know what the conversation was like at the tree in the garden? Go listen to your thoughts for about ten minutes. And it won't take you long to realize the same hiss in the tree is the same hiss in your thinking. So avoid the imitation meta narratives that are unrighteous. Put on righteousness that comes from the application of the truth. Sin, Satan's best friend, will seek to master you. This is one of Satan's greatest tools, is the mastery of sin. Listen to Genesis 4, 7. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Sin seeks to pillage your mind and your thinking and take advantage of you, and it will rule you if you do not live in the meta narrative of the truth. So much I want to say there, but we'll hold off. We need to move. Satan uses sin to accuse Jesus' people. Revelation 12.10, Zechariah 3.1. We learn that Satan is the accuser of God's people. You hear those thoughts accusing you? God doesn't love you. You're not worthy to know Jesus. How can God even like you, much less love you? Those don't come from the Spirit. 
So Satan uses sin, he uses unrighteousness to accuse God's people. Realize a life pattern of sin as the characteristic of a life of evidence that that person is still in bondage to Satan. A pattern of sin is characteristic of a life that is still in bondage to Satan. You see, the pattern of a Christian is repentance. It's not sinlessness, it's repentance. We're going to sin until the day we crawl into the casket. But the evidence of a follower of Jesus Christ is, I hate my sin, and yet I still go back to it. Jesus, help me. Not, man, sin's awesome. Maybe God gave me that sin to just, you know. No, that came straight from, God does not give you sin. That's Satan's play pretty. Unrighteousness. Temptation to any idolatry, no matter how subtle, is satanic and intended to drag you into the demonic. I have the whole passage, 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 22. We don't have time to read it. You're going to have to go read it. But the most subtle thing that drags you away from devotion to Christ, no matter how subtle or how benign it may seem, is intended to drag you away into the demonic. Therefore, put on righteousness that comes from the garment of truth, not anything that drags you away from devotion to Christ. Any temptation to put anything before God and His kingdom is a temptation away from the truth and is satanic in its participation with demons. Go read that passage and chew on that. Unrighteous anger invites satanic activity. Ephesians 4, 26-27. These are some of the adjectives. Unrighteous anger invites satanic activity. Paul says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Unrighteous anger is an open door that says, Satan, demons, have at me. So therefore, put on righteousness. Disgraceful behavior is satanic, and it's a satanic snare. First Timothy 3, 7, he's speaking to the pastor and the members of the congregation. We studied through that. Remember, pastor, it's not like he has a higher ethical standard than everybody else in the church. Like he you know, must not be drunk, but everybody else can be slop schnockered. No, no, that, that's not, we studied through First Timothy. You'll listen to that on, on the interweb, but. He's saying, moreover, pastor and congregation must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So this graceful behavior invites satanic influence. So how do we put on righteousness? What does it look like? Putting on righteousness will look something like this. Repentance is a characteristic of your life. Repentance is a characteristic of your life. Sanctification through the transformation of our thinking. I'm out of time, so I've got to speed through. Leaning on the renewal activity of the Holy Spirit as we repent. Romans 8, 13. Ephesians 4, 22 to 24. Putting off the old self and putting on the new self. 1 John 5, 18. Trust in and bank on the truth that God keeps us from the evil one. Realize as we are obeying the truth and seeking to walk in righteousness, our good Father keeps us from the evil one. Listen, there, I said this last week, we're sometimes better at witchcraft than we are practicing Christianity. There's nothing you, you, I, can ultimately do. I'm radically dependent on the Lord to guard me as I walk in the truth and simply obey the truth. That's what I can do. Walk in the truth, obey the truth, and ultimately I need Jesus to keep Satan on a leash. See Job. Job was doing nothing wrong. And Satan was allowed in, but he wasn't allowed full access. So we got to recognize our, our umbrella of protection is the Lord. Our job is to interpret all things through the lens of the truth and obey that truth in righteous behavior. But I trust in and I bank on the truth that God keeps me and will keep me from the evil one. We believe that the Father has the enemy on a leash and we rest in the truth that Father will sustain us even through the most difficult circumstances. So we put on the truth, and we put on righteousness in prayer, and then we worship. We worship. We worship. Psalm 147, 1, praise the Lord. That's a command. For it is good to sing praises to our God. It is pleasant, and a song of praise is fitting. Listen, guys. Of all the things we can do this morning, we've heard what's in the manual. We have taken from the table. 
and we've remembered the meta-narrative of the gospel, it is only fitting that God's people worship. Unique around the world is the song that comes out of the heart of the believer who follows Jesus. The Lord sits enthroned on the praises of His people. One of the greatest tools we have in being reminded of the meta-narrative of the truth, the noun, and the noun of righteousness, the acts that come from the truth, is the singing of that truth and offering back to the Father praise for who He is and what He has done in us and through us. And so worship is not intended to entertain you. Hear that. And I'm going to drive that home till the day this church dies or I die, or something. But this, what we do here is not for your entertainment. It is not so you can say, wow, they played good. It is an opportunity for you to obey the Scriptures, obey the truth. Christians worship. This is, this is not optional. I just want to say this. Hear this. Men, ladies, your worship is not optional. Every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That day is coming and He will force you to bend the knee or you'll bend it willingly, but you will bow. I will bow. I would prefer to do it willingly. So when we come to sing, this is not for you. Keep in mind, worship is not for you. This whole worship board thing is dumb. The whole idea that, that you get you should choose what you like better, it's not about you. Worship is for Jesus. So if you walk into that room and your attitude is, I don't like it, you have an idol. And you fall into the scheme of the evil one. You're your idol. You think it's about your enjoyment, not Jesus. And there's sin all over your heart, sin in your soul. You're in rebellion. You're in a trap of the evil one and you don't even know it. This worship time is not for you. It is for Jesus. So bring your best. Make sense? We want to obey the truth. What is worship? It's for Jesus. So therefore, what's a righteous behavior? Bring Jesus worship. We just put on armor. Let's put on armor. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, for your glory and our joy, I ask, Holy Spirit, you would powerfully wash over this room. I ask that you would do a work in the hearts and lives of your people that that transcends all of our excuses and all the things we want to bring, all of our, but what about, and oh, what about, oh, but. Holy Spirit, rule so powerfully, but we have no excuses. There's nothing we can bring. No jive talk. No sidestep. But come in power and cause your people to enjoy you and make much of you. Help us to put on truth and put on righteousness and help us to stand. Give no ground. Give no ground to the devil and his schemes. We pray that now in Jesus' name.